Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Today's scripture reading is from 2 Samuel 18, 1-5, and 31-33. This is the word of God. Then David mustered the men who were with him and set over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under the command of Joab, one-third under the command of Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the command of Ittai, the Gittite. And the king said to the men, I myself will also go out with you. But the men said, you shall not go out, for if we flee, they will not care about us. If half of us die, they will not care about us, but you are worth 10,000 of us. Therefore, it is better that you send us help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. So the king stood at the side of the gate while all the army marched out by the hundreds and by the thousands. And the king ordered Joab and Abishai and Ittai, deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave orders to all of the commanders about Absalom. Now continuing in thir- verse 31. And behold, the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, Good news for my lord the king, for the Lord has delivered you this day from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king said to the Cushite, Is it well with the young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be like that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And he went, and as he went, he said, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Would you stay standing as we pray? Father, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for this passage. And we ask that your spirit, your word, would make your, become alive for us this day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. It was June 18, 1940, when Winston Churchill stood before the House of Commons and he delivered some memorable words. World War II was in the early days. And Winston Churchill said this, Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duty and so bear ourselves that if the British Commonwealth and Empire lasts a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. I've heard the words, my finest hour occasionally, but I've heard the words, not my finest hour even more, whether it's in movies or someone referencing that. Even Google weighs in. If you Google my finest hour, there's 65 million hits. You Google not my finest hour, there's 59 million. Even Google is a mixed bag as our lives are of finest hours and not finest hours. It should be no surprise to us that even one of the best of men, this man that we have been studying for some time, 
who is chosen because God said, I want one who is after my own heart, would have good days and even good years as well as those times in his life that we would say were not his finest hour. It's easy to think of First to Second Samuel 11 in the, in the, the events of, of David and Bathsheba and Uriah. And say, surely that was the time when, when David sunk lowest. But I wonder if there are things that we will see here in which David was either just as low or even lower, particularly as we compare him to the greatness of our God. Let's look at that today because when we begin this section, we might be inclined immediately to say the old David is back as we begin 2 Samuel chapter 18. The brave commander-in-chief, he's, he's divvying up the forces. He's speaking with authority. This one who slayed bears and lions as a teen. This one who slayed a giant nine foot tall. Some estimate he was only 15 years old. How many of our early junior middle high schoolers would you trust to take on a giant nine foot tall? David, in his younger days, was such an example of one who was brave. He was strategic. He was patient when he needed to be. He was daring when he needed to be. But we've not seen that David in some years. Maybe a decade. We've not seen that David. But we read here as we charge out of chapter 18, Then David mustered the men who were with him, set over them commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds. And David sent out the army, one-third under Joab, one-third under Abishai, one-third under Ittai the Gittite. And then it says this, And the king said to the men, I myself will go out with you. I'm going to go out with you. Are you thinking... I wish he had done that at the start of chapter 11. I wish he had done that rather than what we read some chapters back in the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to war. David sent Joab, as he's about to do here, but David remained at Jerusalem and late one afternoon arose from his couch and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. But time has passed that, that moral collapse for David is some years in the rearview mirror. And we have to ask, are we seeing an older and wiser David? Or are we seeing an older and compromised David? Now to remind you, Absalom has been plotting for some years. He has, has, has been one who's, who has maybe never outwardly, at least according to the scriptures, been said to hate his father or despise his father, but his actions would suggest very much that he does. His, his actions declare his hatred for David and even his greed for, for his throne. It's not a new story, a power-hungry prince wanting the king's throne. When you're a power-hungry prince wanting the king's throne early, there's usually only one way that that's going to happen. A great battle will decide. And, and we've got to ask ourselves, is, at this point, is, is this a pretty straightforward deal? 
Is this a situation where, where the, a prince wants to ascend to the throne before it's his time, and he's going to need to take out a king, and a battle is going to determine that? It seems fairly straightforward. Until we climb into David's head, and we find ourselves wondering, is this just a, a mishmash of confusion Just a place of wavering, a place of lack of resolve. Yeah, but can you just get on with telling the Bible story, preacher? Uh, Leave your bunny trails for thinking about the sermon, you know, some other time. Uh, Stop your musings. Get on with the text. Well, the text is about what's going on in David's head for the most part. Listen to what Dale Davis, a commentator, says about it. We can detect the focus of attention, in this case, of the Bible writer, by the way the writer all but ignores the battle as a whole. He doesn't want to give you a comprehensive, detailed account of the battle. He wants to tell you, and he lists three things, how Absalom meets his end, he wants to highlight David's anxiety as those messengers come, and he's, he's, he's heavy-hearted for what he's going to hear about Absalom. And number three, the biblical writer wants to talk with us and communicate to us David's reaction to that news. What is going on inside David's head, inside his heart, is the Bible story. As we look at 2 Samuel chapter 18. David says, I'm going to go out with you. And of course, the key men give pushback. The men said, you're not going to go out. For if we flee, they'll not care about us. If half of us die, they won't care about us. You're worth 10,000 of us. It's better for you to send help from the city. The king said to them, whatever seems best to you, I will do. Whatever seems best to you, we can read it in a a variety of ways. The humility of of a mature man. We could read it as the loss of courage, the decline in moral authority of a beaten man. Is the resolve of this former David returning? Is the decisiveness that he once had a strong grasp on what's right and wrong and the willingness to follow through with what he should be doing, is it there again? Well, the fact is we're not given the answers to that. But we are certainly left wondering, and we are certainly left convinced that in David's life, and maybe yours, life is messy, and life is complicated. And growing older is a mixed bag with with Christ, with both accumulated wisdom as well as accumulated reflections on what you wish would have been different. The next scene is the army heading out in verse 4. The king stood at the side of the gate while all their army marched out, hundreds and thousands, and the king ordered Joab and Abishai and and, uh, Ittai, deal gently with the young man for my sake. And all the people heard when the king gave those orders. Deal gently For my sake, with the young man, Absalom. With these words, I would say to you, I think love obscures justice. Love obscures justice with those words. Obscures justice, yes, let me tell you why. 
You remember David was one who, who, who really revered God's authority. In his younger years, he didn't just withhold killing King Saul, his predecessor, that he knew God had put in place. He didn't just, when, when Saul was seeking him out and he had opportunity to kill him, he didn't just not follow through, though the men in the back of the cave wanted him to do that. God's given him into your hand, they said. But when David even snipped off a small part of Saul's robe, it says his, his heart struck him. He, he was bothered at the deepest level that he had even shown the slightest disrespect for, as he said, the Lord's anointed. He had done it to, to demonstrate to Saul, once Saul had a distance between him and, and there was a distance between the two, he could hold up that, that piece of cloth and say, Saul, I was this close, but, but, but I'm not after you. This proves it. Seems so very logical, but David was so convinced of God's ways and, and, and God's anointed one that he didn't even feel good about having cut off that small piece of the robe. He held on to verses like this in Exodus 22. You, shan't reveal, you should not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. Even when David heard a few years later a messenger come and deliver news of Saul's death, and that messenger somewhat foolishly admitted, Saul was, was, was near death and I finished him off. David, it says, called one of the young men and looked at the messenger and said, go execute him. David was one who held high respect for God's plans, God's anointed one. And, and compare that to the situation now with Absalom. Absalom is rebellious. He has raised an army against his father, the king. He's been doing it not in some, some just, uh, like he kind of got a you know, problem in the last week or so. He's been doing it, as was pointed out just last week by Greg, for years. Years he has been plotting a rebellion against his father. He's clearly disloyal to the kingdom and to his father, the king, Having, having swayed the hearts, the scriptures say, of thousands of people in Israel against the Lord's anointed. And he is against the Lord's anointed. He wants the king, and as a result of wanting the kingdom, we can say he wants the king dead, because that is the means to get there. And so here is David as he's speaking to the armies who are going out to defend his kingdom, to defend him who are saying our lives are not worth anything in their eyes compared to you. You stay back. You be in a place of safety for our sakes. And David says, go easy on the young man. To go easy, some, some translations say it this way, deal gently. A few verses later, when one of the foot soldiers is, is, is hearkening back to what he heard, he said, he said, protect the young man. The king said, protect the young man Absalom. It's not a matter of saying, bring him back alive so we can really deal with him. He's wanting his son Absalom, his rebellious son against him, his rebellious son against him as a father, his one who is trying to usurp the kingdom, his one who is against the Lord's anointed. 
He is saying about that young man, protect him. And he says about the young man, deal gently, protect, watch over this young man. As if to say this, this little lad. Absalom is probably 29 or 30 years old at the time. And David uses a term that usually just described a young boy running around the house wreaking havoc. Maybe at most someone who would be a teen. Absalom is no little boy. He's no teen, still finding his grounding. He's, he's a man of nearly 30 years old. Commentator Dale Davis says it this way, Those orders would have made sense if Absalom was entering therapy and not war. But he was entering war, war against his father. I see here in David that he puts himself at odds against God's plans and even God's justice. God's plans were made clear in the last chapter. Remember when when there's two different men that that came before Absalom and offered advice, and, and it says God swayed the heart of Absalom, so he listened to the advice that in the end would be helpful to David. And in 2 Samuel 17, verse 4, it says, The Lord had ordained to defeat the good counsel of Ahithophel, the first of the two counselors, so that the Lord might bring harm upon Absalom. David, whether he fully realized it or not, was setting himself up against God's plans. He's setting himself up against God's justice because God's requirement, punishment in in, in the Old Testament of a rebellious son, of one who rises up against the Lord's anointed, was not to hear words, protect him, watch over him. Whatever you do, whatever happens in the battle, bring him back safe. David was setting himself up against God's justice. David shows the human ability to love with the depth of love that God has and to be true to the justice that God requires was beyond him. He displays an imperfect love, a love for Absalom that really arrives too late, we'll see, arrives after his death and is largely guilt-provoked. It's an imperfect justice because Justice is compromised with David's inability to say the right things as the army heads out. Well, the army does head out in verse 6, and I want to pick up the pace of of my, my passage here and provide some highlights from the text. I want to be true to emphasizing what the Bible emphasizes, the death of Absalom and the grief of David. And I want to emphasize the messiness and confusion that result from both. The battle occurs in the forest that seemed to be a strategically helpful place for David's men. It says the forest claimed many of the lives of the, of the enemy, even more than maybe the swords and the battles did. But the loss was great on that day, we're told, in verses 6 to 8. 20,000 men lost their lives as a result of this battle between father and son to save and preserve this kingdom. It's not just 20,000 men, it's 20,000 husbands and fathers and brothers and good friends that didn't return home. We read in the passage that Absalom, and, and it says right in the scriptures, happened to meet 
the servants of David. When God has determined one's fate, there's no happenstance. They didn't happen to meet. They found Absalom not by, by marching onto a fortress, following him from country to country to track him down. They find Absalom suspended a few feet off the ground in a tree. His hair that produced five pounds of hair a year, had, as, as, as the king's mule had traveled underneath the branches of a thick oak tree, literally gotten tangled up. And you can just picture Absalom, maybe two, three, four feet, suspended in the air by this mane of hair above him. That's how they found him, suspended and helpless and alone. Listen to what one person said about it. The mule, which was really David's royal steed, it was a sign. The mule is what David would ride out on. The mule was the royal steed, an emblem of the house of David. And with one stroke of divine judgment, Absalom utterly lost the reins of the kingdom, not just the mule. Joab, one of those three commanders, is told that Absalom is, is hanging from a tree. And, and he proceeds to the site, and before doing so, he grabs three light spears, javelins. And I guess the scene was probably a gruesome but just matter-of-fact scene as Absalom walked up and didn't just take one or two of those spears, but took all three of those spears and jammed them up under the chest of Absalom and into his heart. Absalom's fate is certainly not what he was hoping for. Listen to what the scriptures say in verses 17 and 18. They then took Absalom and threw him into a great pit in the forest. They raised over him a very great heap of stones, and all Israel fled, every one to his own home. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and set up for himself the pillar that is in the king's valley. That's just on the east side of Jerusalem, the king's valley. For he said, I don't have a son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name. And to this day, it's called Absalom's Monument. What a warning to anyone wanting to make monuments in this life for themselves and not honoring God in this life. They threw his body into a great pit. I gather they must have sought for a site nearby that they didn't have to dig a grave. Threw him into a great pit. I have to wonder, were the three javelins still in his, in his chest wall protruding out as several men just toss him in to this great pit? And they pile on him, it says, not a heap, not a great heap of stones, but a very great heap of stones. He's not in good company. We only read two other times when someone is piled over, their corpse is piled over with stones as a burial. Achan, Joshua 7, one who had sinned and brought on such punishment for not just himself, but for his family, says they piled a great heap of stones on him. And then also in the very next chapter, King Ai, who had been hung and Joshua had him at, this, at his own city gate, at Ai's city gate, covered over with a pile of stones. But think of Absalom's monument. You think, oh, he's, he's piled over with a heap of stones in the, in the forest. No one will, 
will care about that. They're going to retreat. And, and, and in times past, in times of the future, the, this monument outside of Jerusalem, that, that'll be his saving grace, his real memory. Oh, maybe he was shrewder than we thought. Did he get away with it? Well, first of all, he's, he's in the king's valley, and he never became king. He claimed a greatness as some are prone to do in this life that, that was never theirs. What a sad thing that is. And then there's a guidebook to Israel. It was written in 1970 that tells us a little bit about Absalom's monument, at least a replica or some portion of it that is still there today. And it says, for centuries, it's been the custom of passersby, Jews, Christians, and Muslims, what a following Absalom has, to throw stones at his monument. And residents of Jerusalem continue to bring their unruly children to Absalom's monument to teach them what happens to a rebellious son. I don't think that monument turned out the way he wanted. The greater focus is not Absalom. It really is David's grief. Despite his kingdom being preserved, despite his people's clear, loyal love, they have fought, they have risked, and some have given their lives for his, his kingdom. For, for David himself, knowing if his kingdom falls apart, what's going to happen to him? And listen, though, to what happens as the first messenger comes and says, it says the, vac- the victory has, has happened and, and David's key question to this first messenger after the battle is, is it well with the young man Absalom? And the messenger's afraid to answer and doesn't answer. Another messenger, perhaps just a few minutes later, arrives. And he yells, good news for my lord the king. He's referring to a battle won, that despite such loss of life, the kingdom has been preserved. David's life is safe. But David can only say, is it well with the young man Absalom, in verse 32. And what happens next is as David realizes his son is dead. So he cries out, oh, Absalom, Absalom, Absalom. If it had only been my life. And he, he mourns in such, such a way. In such a groaning and deep and loud way, there's no opportunity for anyone else to process their own grief. There's no opportunity for anybody else to celebrate the battles that's been won. There's no opportunity for anybody else to do anything other than what the scriptures say in chapter 19, verses 2 and 3. The victory that day turned into mourning for all the people. The people stole into the city that day as a people steal into a city who are ashamed when they flee from battle. So it's no surprise that David gets a scathing rebuke from his commander Joab. His words are true, but boy, his words are stern. Joab is a man of blood. 
a few hours before, he was the one with three javelins in his hand, and we know where the tips of those ended up, in the king's son. Probably knowing not only was this what justice deserved, but, but to spare Absalom would, would continue this mess, this confusion, this risk to the kingdom. And listen to the things that, that Joab says to David in these verses in chapter 19, verses 5 to 8. I'll highlight the key things he says. He says, first of all, you have covered in shame the faces of your servants who this day have saved your life and the life of your family. He says, you have loved those who hate you. Referring to Absalom and what Absalom has lived out for the last several years. And you have hated those who have loved you. And Joab is thinking perhaps of himself, but especially of the people who have been fighting that day with him under his, his leadership, who had stolen back into the city ashamed, not able to celebrate, not even able to mourn, just there to observe the grief of a, of a king for a son that had hated him. Uh, Joab continues, you have made it clear today that commanders and servants are nothing to you. And then he says to David, if Absalom were alive and all of us were dead today, you'd be pleased. Joab tells David what his actions, what David's actions have been saying, what they have announced. You would, as if he said it this way, you would have us all destroyed if it meant preserving the life of your son. And if that is true, and it seems to have been at that moment true, was there ever a time in David's life when his heart was more unlike God's heart, the Father's heart? The Bible intends for us to face David's humanity, I think, his limitations, his inability to to love fully, to carry out justice rightly. The Bible wants us to wrestle, I think, with those things. I mean, just think if a historian had written this, this portion. <laughs> one, one scholar put it this way. It would have been a lot shorter. The section would have probably been something like this. Joab sent news to the king of the battle, and David learned that Absalom had perished, and he went into mourning. Two sentences. But this passage is 20 times longer than those two sentences as it recounts this portion of David's life. David's guilt, one has said, inflames his grief. His sorrow is, is no doubt deep, but, but it's been brought on by a lot more than just the loss of his grown son Absalom. It has been brought on by David's actions, by, by his passivity as a man and a father after the incident with Bathsheba and Uriah. It's been brought on in part because of God's promised consequences. As Nathan said to him, the sword shall not depart from your house. His love for Absalom seems to gush out at the time that Absalom's body is lying crushed under a pile of stones. And David's failings are weighing on him. 
If there had been a battlefield autopsy of Absalom, it wouldn't have been hard to open up the left lateral part of the chest and see three holes in the heart. But even before the battle, had you done an autopsy on him, I think there would have been a hole in Absalom's heart that David had inflicted of not seeking him out, not not welcoming him back and making things right, of not leading him. It's not just a king, but as a father who loved Absalom in his lifetime. David, in part, is the one that had put a hole in Absalom's heart and, and in part, it can be said, drove the actions of Absalom. David's failings are not just at love, but his failings are also at at meeting out justice in his role as a king. He just can't seem to get justice right at this time in his life. And it's not just with Absalom. Think about as as David is, is heading back into Jerusalem. And I highlight his interactions with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was that son of of David's good friend, Jonathan. And some time back, when David ascended to the kingdom, he said, is there anyone left of Jonathan's household that I may show kindness to? And he found Mephibosheth. They found him and brings Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth has been lame because he was dropped as just as an infant. Been lame all his life. And he spends years in David's household house there in Jerusalem. It says even ate at his king's table. And David had, had given him a great deal of land that was once in, in the family. But as, as David is leaving Jerusalem a couple chapters back, fleeing for his life, it was Mephibosheth's master servant Ziba that, that met him along the road, met David along the road. Mephibosheth isn't there. David asks, where is Mephibosheth? And Ziba, this conniving servant, says he's he's staying back, kind of hoping regime change turns out to be good for him. That's what he says, so many words. And David, in a snap judgment, says, Ziba, all that was Mephibosheth is now yours. And he heads on. Well, Mephibosheth showed his true and honorable colors as David is now coming back to Jerusalem. And Mephibosheth, and it would have taken more work than someone able-bodied, meets David as David is coming into Jerusalem. He looks a bit like a teenager that's gone on a summer camping trip and and before he left forgot his toothbrush, toenail clippers, shampoo, and washcloth. Listen to what the scriptures say about how Mephibosheth looked. In verse 24 of chapter 19, Mephibosheth had neither taken care of his feet, trimmed his nails, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until David came back in safety. Never had stinky clothes and poor hygiene loved so much as Mephibosheth identifying with David's sorrow, identifying with with David's plight, even with Absalom taking over Jerusalem, showed a tremendous expression of loyal love for David. 
He even says to David, I, you know, and essentially he knows Ziba has been given the land. He's heard about that, all that Mephibosheth's land that, that, that David had given to him. Now is in the control of Ziba, his master servant. And David, despite seeing such evidence of Mephibosheth's love for him, such an evidence of his loyalty to him, the best he can do in verse 29 is to say, I've decided you and Ziba should divide the land. Oh, what a reward for that kind of loyalty. What a reward for that kind of love. What a violation of real justice. Show me that kind of love, and I'll only take away half your stuff. David, though, is one of God's best. He is one who we are told is after God's own heart. The most popular book of the 66 books of the Bible, he wrote half of it, the Psalms. Yeah, I know when he sunk low, he, he sunk lower than most of us will get to, at least in terms of stuff that would make the front page of the local newspaper. But when he rode high, I don't know if there's anyone here in my voice that could say I've ever ridden that high that close to God's heart. The point is not to to show the disparity between David's best and his worst, but I think it's more to show that even the best of us, the best that humanity can do is such a gulf between God, between God's heart, between God's ability to love, between the Father's ability to carry out justice perfectly. In David, loyal love and sorrow failed to meet, especially the sorrow that sometimes is required when you carry out justice rightly. Loyal love and that kind of sorrow for David didn't meet, at least in this story. But they did meet in Jerusalem a thousand years later, didn't they? Oh, think of what Isaac Watts said when he said, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? It was at the cross that God, through Christ, did what David could not when love and sorrow met. I thought of David as I read about a woman who, of all things, overstayed her welcome, or at least her time, at the White House. Mary Todd Lincoln moved in the White House in March of 1961. There was great conflict, if you remember anything about history, in the country at that time. There was great conflict in her own family. She was one of 13 siblings, full and half-siblings, eight of which were on the Confederate side. And here her husband is the one in charge of trying to hold the country and the families of this country together. It was not only a time of great conflict for her, it was a time of great sadness for her. Do you know how many people have died in the White House? Ten. Do you know how many children have died in the White House? One. 
Willie Lincoln, age 11, 1962, I'm sorry, 1862, a year after Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln had moved into the White House, died of typhoid fever. It seemed like things were turning in April 1965 when the great Civil War had come to an end. It was just five days later that Abraham Lincoln and and his wife Mary got in a carriage to head, hopefully to relax and see a play at the Ford's Theater. She would reflect a little bit later that on that journey, after all the sadness and the conflict that they had experienced during their time in the White House, they, they, she re- reflected, they decided together, and I quote, to be more cheerful in the future. As you well know, Abraham Lincoln did not return with her to the White House the next morning. He had been shot that night at the theater, pronounced dead at 722 the next morning, and Mary Todd Lincoln returned to the White House, a widow. She was unable to summon the strength to move out of the White House for five weeks. President Andrew Johnson, now fully in control, the vice president, now the the president, did what anybody else would do. He gave her some space. She would write as she looked back on leaving the White House in May, Five weeks later, saying goodbye to that house would never have troubled me if I had carried with me the loved ones who entered that house with me. The White House, she would say, somewhat exaggerating, but nonetheless from a heart of pain, was a place where all the sorrows of my life occurred. Sometimes a person's grief is so heavy that even someone as powerful as the President of the United States steps back and gives room. That's what Andrew Johnson did for five weeks. I'm inclined to do that for David at this low, low point in his life. Obvious are the consequences of his sin from past years. Obvious are the fatherly missteps. Obvious are the passivity that usually comes when you've lost the high moral ground in life. There's lessons there. But I'm left most wanting to rest in what God has done and none of us could do. Even the best of us, like David, couldn't do. Because God, through Christ, did what David could not when love and justice perfectly met. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your love for us. We are thankful for your example of exceeding what any human being could do in Christ. Father, we thank you for a chance to study your word today, and may it be a blessing and a servant to us as we seek to live our lives this week. And We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You're dismissed.